Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. You've likely noticed that information has become more and more accessible, and the tools for communicating with one another continue to expand. And yet we face a paradox. Community has become harder and harder to maintain, and the truth seems increasingly elusive. In this series, we'll focus on navigating the challenges of modernity. Our guests will give us insight on the nature of truth, the challenges of technology, and how to approach our common life. We'll talk with leading thinkers, including Jonathan Haidt, Peter Kreeft, Arthur Brooks, Francis Collins, and many others. In this episode, Sheree Harder will talk with Bonnie Christian about trust, truth, and the knowledge crisis. Drawing on her experience as a journalist, Bonnie will explore the sources that contribute to widespread confusion and conspiracy thinking, and she'll offer insights into ways to combat misinformation and pursue truth in our own lives, our families, and in our church communities. It's also coming into church life, to congregations. This is, I think, a a matter of discipleship, and it's something that I've heard from a lot of pastors. It's something that they are increasingly focused on, and and that in many cases sort of caught them by surprise, because it all happened pretty quickly. And if you went to seminary 10 or 15 years ago, this isn't what you heard about, but now it's, it's very much here and affecting so many of us. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from October of 2022. You can find the full video of that conversation along with our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. Our discussion today will focus on one of those big questions, namely, how do we discern and know what is trustworthy and true? It's a simple question, but a tall order. We are awash in misinformation, conspiracy thinking, partisan outrage, and alternative facts. And while conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking are themselves nothing new, the power of our increasingly personalized, highly politicized, outrage-inducing, and unrelenting social media channels is. The resulting echo chamber amplification of misinformation has left us not only more confused in our thinking, but also certain in our judgments, disinclined to consider divergent data or new perspectives, and distrustful of those who disagree. The result is what our guest today has called a knowledge crisis, one that is, in her words, breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian community. So how do we learn to think well, to discern what is true amidst conflict and chaos, and to respond to confusion with both wisdom and charity? Joining me today to discuss that very question is Bonnie Christian. Bonnie is a seasoned journalist, a frequent contributor to Reason Magazine, a columnist at Christianity Today, a fellow at Defense Priorities, and previously served as the editor of The Week Magazine. Her work has been featured in numerous outlets, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Daily Beast, CNN, and Politico. And she's also the author of A Flexible Faith, as well as her new release, Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community, which we've invited her here today to discuss. Bonnie, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. So as we start off, let's just start at the very beginning with what is the knowledge crisis and how is it breaking our brains and corrupting our communities? Well, the knowledge crisis, I think, is that 
very unfortunately familiar sense of unease or uncertainty that a lot of us feel these days as we attempt to engage in especially online media, social media, not exclusively though, and especially, but again, not exclusively political media. It's that sense of wading into this onslaught of information and truth claims and not being certain what you can trust, what voices are reliable, what fact claims you should take seriously. And I think, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, that's sort of like a, an intellectual thing. It's something that's happening just in our minds. But in practice, this has very real relational effects, um, both at an interpersonal level, where we're having these very frustrating conversations with friends and loved ones, where it doesn't even feel like you're looking at the same reality. And then also, you know, it has a very corrosive effect on community life, be that in a, a political sense, where all of the, the trends that you hear talked about all the time of, of negative partisanship and polarization, that's all very much tied into this because it's so concerned with, with any discussion we're having, you know, knowledge is going to be at the basis of that. And it's also coming into church life, to congregations. This is, a, I think, a, a matter of discipleship. And it's something that I've heard from a lot of pastors is something that they are increasingly focused on. And, and that in many cases sort of caught them by surprise because it all happened pretty quickly. And if you went to seminary 10 or 15 years ago, this isn't what you heard about, but now it's, it's very much here and affecting so many of us. You know, one thing that you mentioned in your book, which it was discouraging to read is, you know, we often <laughs> think about a lack of information as sort of fueling our mistaken notions, you know, ignorance being at the, the basis of uh, a lot of misinformation. But one of the things you pointed out in your book that it was actually often the more time people spent being informed uh, by different you know, media sources, the more likely they were to be misinformed as opposed to, to well-informed. What's going on there? That's a, a counterintuitive link. Yeah, that particular piece came from a, a 2019 study called The Perception Gap. And what they found was, as you said, people who were very up on politics, people who consider themselves news junkies who were, were quite well-informed, the most distorted perceptions, particularly of their political opponents. And frequently the way that they those perceptions were distorted was they thought that other people were more extreme and more antagonistic than they actually are. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way that our media, media ecosystem functions right now, where there's this intense competition for viewers because you know you have to get eyeballs on there to be able to just pay the bills. And that encourages a, a high output of content and encourages sensationalism. You know, the more exciting headline is going to get more clicks. And it also, in the social media context, you know, outrageous things tend to travel farther. There's some evidence that false claims will go viral farther and more, more quickly than true claims will. And I think that's a lot of that is just because there's a there's a sort of a perverse freedom if you don't have a regard for the truth. You can say whatever you want. You can exactly play into people's outrage and their fears. Mm -hmm. And someone who is you know trying to be more ethical and, and actually tell the truth, tell the, the, the factual story has constraints and, and isn't so easily able to whip people up and get those eyeballs. And uh, yeah, that's a, it's a widespread problem. I think we, have a, we would, might like to think, well, that's, that's the other side's problem. You know, the people that I oppose, they're the ones who are, are doing that. But I think it's, it's very much across the political spectrum. Yeah. 
Yeah, you mentioned just how how misinformation spread so quickly on social media, and there, there have been certainly a lot of studies that have shown that. I think there was one study that showed that misinformation actually spread six times as quickly in social media as that which was like which was true and which mm-hmm. was accurate. Uh, and another thing you point out in your book is that not surprisingly, our our trust in media is down. But our viewership and our consumption is way up. And of course, the people who are spreading misinformation on, on social media, uh, that's not an outside institution. That That's us um, doing it. It, it, nor can it be just attributed just to bots. So what is going on here and why have we come to uh, love and consume more and more from outlets that we distrust? Some of it, I think, is sort of tribalism. And, you know, people will say, well, I don't trust the media, but the stuff that I listen to is good. And so, you know, people think that they, they've become an exception and they've, they've found the, the true voices, which may or may not be correct. And some of it is that, as you said, we, we sort of all are invited to play pundit now. And so there's that incentive when everyone is uh, constantly being encouraged to share their opinion. You got to have, you got to have an opinion to share. You got to have, you got to take stuff in to be able to put stuff out. A lot of it, I think though, is we, we like to tell ourselves that we're consuming this political media because we're going to be good citizens and we're going to be well-informed and have, you know, very rational opinions and all sorts of flattering things like that. But in practice, what our behavior suggests is that that's not actually why we're consuming this media. We're consuming it because of how it affects us emotionally and how it makes us feel better about ourselves than other people, how it excites us, how it um, in, sort of inflames us. And so, you know, in, in that light, it makes sense that we would still be consuming more of media that we know in some sense uh, isn't worth our time because we're not really there to become better informed. We're there to be entertained for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, in addition to the uh, counterintuitive finding that your book talks about, whereas the more we consume, the more likely we're being misinformed, uh, there's another sort of inversion of one what one might expect, which is, you know, while our trust in different institutions and media, even in the information we, we uh, receive, has gone down, that hasn't led to a greater discernment or that kind of skepticism hasn't necessarily always been applied in in wise ways towards concentrations of power or the like. But it is actually instead, the the more distrustful we are, strangely, the more gullible we have become in terms of believing even stranger things. I would love to kind of hear you talk a little bit about that phenomenon and why that might be. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm I'm a libertarian, as as anyone who Google's me will find out, and I, I'm certainly not anti-skepticism. I think skepticism is one of the the healthiest habits of American politics and one of our our, our better inclinations. The problem that we have now is that it's not a, a healthy skepticism in many cases. It's much more cynical. It's much more reflexive. It's not really informed by anything so much as a, just a knee-jerk reaction. When I was writing on that subject, I, I quoted from the philosopher Hannah Arendt, and she talks about a, a combination of gullibility and cynicism in which you think, and I believe that the quote is uh, that anything is possible and nothing is true. Uh, I may be butchering that or reversing it or something, 
um, but anything is possible, nothing is true. It's gullibility and cynicism at once. And, and so the way it works is it's a very, it's a very convenient posture to take, I think. And it's very conducive to motivated reasoning, where if someone presents you with, you know, a, a truth claim or, or a story that you don't want to be true, uh, you can simply dismiss it, right? Because, well, you can't trust those people. That doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, why would why would you believe the, the media? It's fake news. But if there's some outlandish claim, or you know, not outlandish, but in many cases, some outlandish claim that you know makes sense to you, that paints people you oppose in a bad light, that you you want it to be true. Well, then you can sort of take a posture of, you know, you can't prove it. You can't prove it's not true. You you weren't there. You didn't see this not happen. It's possible. Um, and so it, it's it's when we have such a deluge of information coming at us all the time, I think it's easy to fall into that sort of pick and choose mindset where you just sort of select things not based on any real careful assessment that you've done because in many cases you can't, there's just too much to assess. And so you default into that more convenient approach of uh, being cynical and overly skeptical about things you don't want to be true. And then being, you know, very trusting in a sense, and then to the point of gullibility about things you do want to be true. Mm -hmm. One of the things you point out is just how closely trust and truth are, are related. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and of course there, there are good reasons why some institutions as well as some media outlets have, have earned the mistrust that they receive. And there have been conspiracy theories that, that were true conspiracies that have happened when things of Watergate and, and mm -hmm. others. And so of course the big question becomes, how does one distinguish who, whom to trust and would be curious, like, how does one choose wisely whom to trust, not only on a personal relationship or a personal level, but more on an institutional level? That's a, a huge question and not sure uh, one that I, not sure it's one I can answer very succinctly. I think a lot of it has to do with developing sort of a feel for truth. An analogy I like to use is when you're browsing in the store, can you sort of feel the difference between cotton and polyester? It's, it's something you, you get right away and that it might be sort of difficult to, if someone sat you down and said, okay, explain to me what feels different here. You might have trouble verbalizing it, but you feel it. And I, so I think developing that feel for truth and, and also for untruth is really important. And that's something that takes time and takes a, a context of, of good habits and good community and, and other wiser voices sort of, you know, to, to build upon and to guide us. And so something I think that is really useful in that regard can be finding, finding voices that you, that you trust from maybe outside of our own time, where it's not so wrapped up in the current debates, right? Because it's someone who, who didn't live during the current debates. And, and when we, when we're looking at reading or, or listening or what have you, Something, someone who's, who's not speaking about the fights that we are so wrapped up in. I think that can help make it easier to sort of figure out, is this, is this truthful? Does this make sense? Is this person reliable and trustworthy? Mm -hmm. And then to be, you know, begin from there, that's a good place where it's, it's not so high stakes. It's not so immediate. It's not about anything that you need to do something about right now. Start there and start developing that feel for truth and, and do that hopefully in, in the context of a good community. And then, you know, as you have that sense, maybe move out into more contemporary situations where 
um, it's a little bit more urgent. Yeah. You've talked about the knowledge crisis or the epistemic crisis that we are in as we so often think of it as a intellectual problem primarily or a political problem. Mm-hmm. But you've also argued that it is both an emotional and a spiritual problem. How so? Well, I think it's an emotional problem in the sense that, you know, I have mentioned, we like to think of ourselves as very rational. We, we sort of just thought things through and we're, we're all little Sherlock Holmeses and in, informing our political opinions, right? But in practice, that's not how humans are. And there's not that very tidy dividing line between emotion and reason. And so a lot of times when we're dealing with especially relational conflicts related to this crisis, we have this idea that we're going to argue someone out of their wrong beliefs. And we're just going to, you know, we're going to sit down and we're going to have this, this reasoned conversation. And they're going to say, I see now that I was wrong and you're right. And I now believe what you believe. Um, That doesn't work in the vast majority of cases because that's not how those beliefs were formed. You know, it's, it's much more about inclinations and instincts and what do your friends believe and what do people you dislike believe? And so when we try to separate those things out, number one, we're deluding ourselves like about our own behavior, but we're also setting ourselves up for more conflict and more frustration and more difficulty in, you know, understanding why other people behave the way they do. And I think that in turn, you know, when someone does something that you think is just unintelligible, like that's frightening. To, to not to just not be able to fathom why someone would behave the way they would. And so then that, you know, it becomes a very vicious cycle of we can't understand one another. We can't understand why someone else doesn't think the way they do. And, and that encourages our fear and anger. And it, it goes on and on. As far as a spiritual crisis, you know, as Christians, it, it concerns truth. We, we think of ourselves as people of truth. And yet here we are having these often very intense debates, even within congregations, uh, you know, there are stories of churches splitting over this stuff or of pastors leaving or being ousted over disagreements about this sort of thing. Um, it's, I don't think that we can separate truth and, and, and love, you know, scripture connects those very frequently, truth and love as, as things that uh, interact with one another and that how we're pursuing truth will uh affect how we are loving one another. And so uh, it is, I think, very much a a spiritual crisis and a matter of discipleship and a matter of discipleship that is quite new and that wasn't on our radar relatively recently. And that intensifies the problem because it's it's just not something that most of us anticipated, you know, needing to address in, in church context. It's, it's, um, it's a fresh problem that previous generations didn't didn't have the same technological context and it's it's pretty rare that there's a discipleship problem that that previous generations didn't already struggle through but but here we do have something i think legitimately new yeah yeah you mentioned fear and anger and the anger part is is quite obvious but you know, fear often seems to be the the source of a lot of conspiracy theories And there are a lot of studies out there showing that, you know, kind of Americans in the aggregate have remarkably elevated fear levels around their fellow citizens. You know, if one looks at polls just of um, political partisans, more than 80% of partisans on either side believe that the other side is brainwashed and evil and out to get them. And, you know, of course, I'm sure there are folks out there with ill intent, but, you know, presumably it's not 
half of the country out to get the other half. And unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be much difference in in Christian versus the the larger populace, uh, at least by the polls. Why are we so convinced that our fellow citizens are intent upon our own destruction? I think a lot of it is that that inability to, to sort of fathom how the other side could come to the conclusions that they have reached. There's this concept in psychology called theory of mind, and it's basically in a, a, a normal adult human brain, you should be able to sort of game out how someone reached their conclusions and understand, even if it's not the conclusion that, that you would reach or the decision you would make, that they have you know different inputs, different experiences, different beliefs, different wants, et cetera. Little kids don't have this all the way yet, and it can be very funny to watch them try to, you know, figure out like why why would you do that? And I think in in politics we are have sort of are sort of losing that capacity in a lot of ways, where we just truly can't understand how the other side could come to the conclusion they've come to. And you know, you think in, in like foreign policy, we'll talk about like is Kim Jong Un a madman, right? Because that's that's frightening. That sense of we can't parse out what we can't anticipate what he's going to do next. And I think it's where we sort of see ourselves, see each other with the same, that same mystification. And I think a lot of that is exacerbated by just the loss of sort of normal community life, uh, especially in institutional contexts where you would see each other every week at church, you would see each other at some sort of like neighborhood club or um, you know, volunteer association or, or bowling to, to reference the the famous book, um, something where you didn't have to have, you know, a a multi-day text thread to coordinate everyone's schedules and losing that sort of regular access to other people really, you know, you might've been having conversations where that you, you, they could explain their thinking to you. And now we're just not having that. And so it's, you know, it becomes self-perpetuating, right? Like if you're afraid of these people, you don't want to hang out with them. If you're not hanging out with them, you become more afraid of them. So what does one do then just in terms of relating with the friend or the relative who does seem to have gone down a conspiracy rabbit hole yeah, where they talk of, of little else, but one wants to keep the relationship alive? How, how, does, how does one approach that? You know, it's, it's never going to be easy, but I think the, the single biggest thing, and you mentioned they talk of little else, is to not talk about that. You know, I argue for a living. I I want to be able to argue someone out of something like that. But in practice, that I don't think those arguments, 99% of the time, I don't think those arguments succeed. Um, And that's for a lot of reasons. Some of it is just, you know, if you're spending an hour a week with someone and you try to argue with them for 45 minutes of it, there's not much of a relationship there. And, you know, no one is going to enjoy that. They're not going to have much reason to listen to you. Some of it, a lot of it though, is, you know, the, the way that a lot of conspiracy theories work, especially now is they're not, you know, they're not a, a carefully reasoned thing. There's not all these specific pieces of evidence that you could show are false, right? It's, it's just sort of a mindset and a, a, a posture of that negative skepticism, that, that very cynical mindset that we've discussed already. And so an argument, you know, maybe, maybe you do win the argument about one specific thing, it doesn't matter. A new new piece will rise up in its place. And so far more productive than arguing, I think, is to 
have conversations about other things and and the those will function to remind that loved one about all of the the good and, and indeed better things in the world that exist outside this this framework into which they've gotten entangled so you know talk about your kids your dog your vacation your jobs whatever literally anything is better and the time that you're spending talking about those things and and focusing on better things that are not just you know this sort of like self-consuming paranoia all of that is is a, a win just the fact of the conversation is a win because it's not time that they're spending digging deeper into into this mindset and you know it's a long game it's not i think we we sort of want to have a short timeline on you know maybe I, I spend a couple months really focused on this and then then it's all better it might be years it might be a lifetime but the more you can spend diverting their attention to other things the better you know you've argued that the the likelihood of systemic reform of this new problem is is relatively small and if it comes it probably won't be all encompassing which means that we will need to change ourselves rather than waiting for for systems to change but of course a lot of the problem is ourselves and even those of us who very much want to think and live wisely and well and and be discerning it is so easy to get sucked into sucked into the echo chamber with feeds that reinforce all of our biases and confirm you know those who are villains and of course blind spots are are called that because we we are blind to them even if we are are very inquisitive in the towards the end of your book you mentioned different formational habits that help one both resist that mindset and be more discerning what are some of those yeah so the the analogy that i give is if you think about a gothic cathedral you know it's got beautiful windows those windows are like the virtues that we need to develop intellectual virtues to be able to engage in this media environment well or in many cases to to disengage to a degree and and actually be able to to maintain that but of course the windows don't stand up by themselves you need the stone walls and and these are habits and these are things that we can much more directly affect and choose to adopt than virtues unfortunately you can't just decide i have this virtue now it would be so nice if you could so a lot of the habits are are very much concerned with how we're spending our time, where we're putting our attention, what voices are we habitually listening to. Something that I heard over and over again from pastors, even before I started writing this book, but then also in my research, was nearly verbatim. You know, I get an hour a week with my congregants, but Facebook or Twitter or CNN or Fox News or what have you gets them for 15, 20, 30 hours. And I think a big part of this is to, to not let that be, be true of us, to, to notice, you know, is my phone the first thing that I look at and social media? Is that the first thing I look at every morning and the last thing every night? Is that how I'm framing my days? You know, where is, is my living room oriented around, you know, doing the, the classic two screen, right? Like the television and the phone at the same time. Is that how the most important room in your family life is physically arranged? Uh, and so being really, I think we, we need to be really honest and, and this is very much me as well. We need to be really honest in assessing how we are spending our time like this, how we have arranged our homes and our schedules and, you know, what, what is shaping you day in and day out. 
because for so many of us, the the answer has really become, you know, the the podcast that I can't do the dishes without, or you know, the 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 TV uh, show that I watch every night while I fold the laundry, and those those voices are not having a neutral effect on us. They're not having a neutral effect on the way we think and on the way that we're able to use our attention. A really good, simple question is, do you have to pick up your phone every time you get to the end of a chapter in a book? Uh, I think for a lot of us, the answer is we do. We do read read like that. And so just take making that assessment and then beginning to reorient our days in a, in a more purposeful way so that this does not eat up our lives is, I think, a, a very concrete way to begin and something that uh, all of us can and, and again, myself included, should do. In addition to a time audit or even a habit audit, mm-hmm. um, you also mentioned a need for a more robust, what you called epistemology of love and hermeneutic of obedience. What does that mean and what does it look like in the context of our um, tendency towards confusion? So the epistemology of love is a phrase that I have stolen from uh, the theologian N.T. Wright. And his argument is that a lot of times when we're trying to acquire knowledge, we veer into sort of like trying to, to reach an impossible objectivity where you just want to sort of be like a blank slate and there's going to be none of your own influence. There's going to be, you know, you're going to be an inhuman robot just picking up facts. Or on the other hand, we sort of go into, you know, just complete subjectivity saying, you know, I I just, you know, I want to find out what's true for me, what seems right to me. And so his idea of an epistemology of love is that you are striking sort of a, a, a virtuous mean between those where you're, you're looking for, you know, the, the thing as it is and, and to, to enjoy it and respect it, to enjoy and respect the truth as it actually is, not as you want it to be to avoid the subjectivity sign, but also, you know, not trying to have that, that complete detachment where, you know, you, you are trying to, to know things as they are and, and follow your increasing knowledge to, to where it naturally leads and to be affected by that and, and not, not try to be a robot that you cannot be. And the hermeneutic of obedience is, I think, closely related to that. It's an idea that, that I encountered, at least in the Mennonite tradition, which is I spent, I've spent most of my adult life in a, a Mennonite church. And the idea is that when you're coming to scripture, though I think this applies more broadly as well, when you're coming to scripture, you will find it much easier to understand the text when you're prepared to obey it. And so for, for me, for example, for a long time, I, I thought, you know, it, it's so confusing what Jesus says about, like, love your enemies and, and turn the other cheek. So, you know, what did he really mean? We, we've got to really, really figure this out. Um, and and uh, having ended up in a Mennonite church, it probably won't surprise you that uh, I, I now think what he meant was love your enemies and, and turn the other cheek. Um, and that being willing to countenance the possibility that the the intended meeting was exactly as as uh, nonviolent as much of a rejection of violence as it sounded like made it possible for me to to consider that right like like to the that that willingness to potentially obey brought clarity to my understanding and i think that's true in a lot of things that we we have to 
that we, we will struggle to understand the truth if we are not willing to to submit to the truth and so a lot of times what we might experience as confusion is actually an unwillingness for something or an unwillingness to recognize that something is true bonnie thank you very much the last word is yours i wanted to share a prayer um, written by saint thomas aquinas which i encountered at some point relatively recently but i i started praying it daily while i was working on this book sort of to to set my my intentions i guess for the day of writing and, and to think about you know how what sort of writer did i want to be and i think you'll you'll understand why it seems so apt for this project as i read it so this is called the prayer before study creator of all things true source of light and wisdom lofty origin of all being graciously let a ray of your brilliance penetrate into the darkness of my understanding and take from me the double darkness in which I have been born, an obscurity of both sin and ignorance. Give me a sharp sense of understanding, a retentive memory, and the ability to grasp things correctly and fundamentally. Grant me the talent of being exact in my explanations and the ability to express myself with thoroughness and charm. Point out the beginning, direct the progress, and help in completion through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.